The story of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment is one of the most notorious annals in American history. Although it is well known, there was a time when it was not known to the public, and there, because of the actions of one person tirelessly working to get the attention of people who needed to hear about this, we now know what happened. I'm sitting here with Peter Buxton, the man who found out about what was going on and decided to tell people about it, and for which we're all indebted. And I just want to say thanks for joining us at Radio Parallax, Peter Buxton. Well, uh, thank you, Doug. Happy to be here. Can you tell us how it was back in the 1960s uh, you became aware of this experiment that was going on down in Alabama, and I guess you were part of the public health service at that time? I was. I had taken a job after graduate school and uh, came to San Francisco, was trained uh, in public health work, and, in, uh, and basically I was an interviewer investigator with, working with the San Francisco City uh, Department of Public Health as a federal employee, it was a cooperative um, venture between the federal government and the Centers for Disease Control, CDC as it was then called. And I guess you want to know how I learned about it, and I'll tell you. I went out to lunch and got a couple of good sandwiches and came back, walked into our coffee room. What, what year is this, by the way, Peter? Oh, I can't tell you the exact year. It was in the 1960s. It, it was a, a good four, more than 40 years ago. Uh, it's in the book. Uh, if, I, if I may give a plug to my friend's book, uh, Bad Blood, by Professor James H. Jones. Uh, Jim Jones uh, is a wonderful, now pretty much retired uh, professor and author uh, living in Washington, D.C., and uh, he wrote the first real keynote book on this story. But I'm getting ahead of myself with that. I didn't have the book then. Nobody did. But we were talking, or you were talking earlier about nobody knew about this study. Actually, some people did know about the study. A lot of doctors knew about it around the country, and there was some shock. Uh, there is, in the book, uh, the first letter that came in saying, what are you doing, preceded what I did, but nothing came of the letter because the doctor in Atlanta at the CDC didn't answer it. This was a woman doctor, and she wrote a note and attached it uh, to the letter and gave it to someone else and said, I propose not to answer this letter, sniff. And it was a letter of criticism of, what are you doing, taking a, a group of black sharecroppers, uh, over 400 of them, and with syphilis, uh, and there's a story about how it was known that they had syphilis, and then 200 from the same community who did not have syphilis, who were enlisted in the study as controls to see if a certain symptom showing up was also showing up in the people who did not have syphilis to sort out what was caused by which disease or condition. Well, you said you went out to lunch in the in the mid '60s, and and that's where you sort of, I guess, became you became more aware of the details. I walked into our coffee room. We had a small coffee room uh, in the clinic where we could go and have a, a break and relax if we needed to, or have lunch. And I had a 
couple of sandwiches. I was going to have lunch. But across the room from where I sat was a senior public health officer, a very nice guy, somebody we all respected. But shortly afterwards, he was transferred somewhere else. I never saw him again. Cannot even remember his name. But he was telling a story to two nurses who had just finished their lunch, and they were sitting intently listening. As he said, when I sat down, I heard him say this, the patient was insane. And his family, uh, somewhat at their wits end, didn't know what to do, but they had some money, and they took him away from the town to another town, and a doctor they knew there, he had treated somebody else in the family. They liked this doctor. This doctor did the appropriate tests, and he said, my God, your grandfather has late untreated syphilis. Uh, this is the cause of his insanity. Let's treat him immediately. It will not cure the insanity, but it will stop him from suffering any more damage than he has already from this syphilis. And the family said, please, please treat him. And he, uh, the, the elderly um, patient was given a dose of penicillin, big dose, to cure him. And the next thing the poor physician knew, he had the county medical society and the county health department jump all over him for interfering with the experiment. No, it was worse than that. Then the CDC got involved and called him up and uh, bawled him out. And they said, look here, you have spoiled one of our volunteers, volunteers with social motives. I'm making signs in the air for quotes, you know, quotes, a volunteer who wanted to help his race by dying of syphilis, suffering the pains of late untreated syphilis, going insane, possibly going blind, possibly having a burst aorta, which was not rare. Yeah. It wasn't really common, but it was not rare either. And a number of people apparently did die of that. When you read the stats about, I guess, the 400 or so people that had syphilis, Many of them died directly from disease. Many died of complications related to it. They passed on the disease congenitally to their offspring in like 19 cases. I mean, it's a it's a terrible, terrible saga. But what I really what really strikes people like myself when I first heard about this in medical school is that was widely recognized that penicillin cured this condition by about I guess 1947. This study started in 1932. Now, this gets very complicated because there were old treatments for syphilis that started with mercury. Salversan, Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet, things like that, yes. Yeah, and uh, Salversan, of course, was arsenic. Mm -hmm. Dilute arsenic was one of the first forms of chemotherapy. And the idea of chemotherapy, to put it bluntly, is to try to kill the organism that's causing the disease before you kill the patient. And that's a very delicate dance on a tightrope. And uh, a num if you had, for instance, 500 patients and you were treating them with salversan, arsenicals, arsenic, uh, you would have a certain death rate. Uh, certain people would have a, a sturdy 
constitution. Uh, they would be strong and healthy other than they were infected and beginning to suffer the problems sure. of the disease. But uh, some of them would be frail and they would get this alversan and they die. Or their teeth might fall out or their hair might fall out or other not really nice problems with arsenic. Now, then when uh, penicillin was discovered, and uh, actually in the late 1920s, but it took a long time for people to realize what a wonder it was. And by the time of World War II, the military basically took the whole supply of penicillin because they really had a need for it. There was a little bit released to the civilians. That's a complicated story, and nobody has really put it together very well. Can, can I just pause to ask you, was, was it true that a, a lot of the use the military wanted to put to penicillin was because of rampant VD? Well, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> ra rampant VD was then and is now a major problem in any army. And the largest number of cases, of course, will not be syphilis. They will be gonorrhea. Right. But uh, there's nothing like a dose of gonorrhea to make a soldier forget about fighting. <laughs> uh, when uh, those symptoms hit, they are, shall we say, very inflammatory. And Peter, I'm a little unclear on one aspect of this study, not having read uh, uh, Bad Blood. Were these men deliberately infected with the disease, or did they encounter it uh, on their own? No, they encountered it on their own. They were not deliberately infected, but it's a very important question. Now, we'll get to the, the reason in a minute, but first let me tell you this. When the study was started in 1932, it was only three years after the crash on Wall Street in 1929. Government revenues were way down. Uh, the Roosevelt administration came in in 1932 and immediately had to shut down the banks within 30 hours. The banks were shut, basically, for what was called a bank holiday. There were desperate times. Uh, all budgets were cut back. If you think it is bad now, if you think it was bad in 2008 in the meltdown, read the story of, uh, of the... Uh, late 20s and early 30s, 1929 to the middle 30s. Terrible time, terrible unemployment. And uh, a number of things were going on. In the South, there had already been treatment programs for massive checking of blood tests. Everybody come in, signs up all over town. They got scraped together some money to put some signs out in, in as many towns as possible because the Surgeon General then, a, a great hero, supposedly, of medicine, and with a few little cautions, he did some things that people had never done with public health before. He went to the advertising industry and he said, look, we know there are terrible diseases out there. We have very little money, but we will try to get these people treated. And then the money was always running out. So... The doctors did not infect anyone with syphilis because they did not have time to do that. They did not have money to pay for certain things. And they were trying to do the startup of this study as an initial six months only study to see what's out there. And when they got the reports back of what they found, 
They referred to it in one chapter of this book we've talked about here, Bad Blood. It's referred to as a gold mine of pathology. They found that people who had the disease for one, two, five, or ten years, let's say, the longer they had it, the more sickness, the more breakdown of their health, the more insanity, the more blindness, the rate started going up. It wasn't a lot, but there were definitely people who went blind and some who went insane and died. But I have to ask you at this point, uh, this was a prospective study, which is a very valuable thing in medicine and in research to follow people forward in time. But there was no shortage of, of pathological cases of syphilis out there. So what I imagine, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I imagine in the 60s when you took a look at this, this was the same thing that occurred to you, that like, why is this necessary? Well, they wanted to have absolute control to maintain at least an attempt at scientific method. They wanted to control uh, what I told you about, uh, some doctor not knowing that this person was, quote, a volunteer, and accidentally treating them for pneumonia with penicillin or tetracycline, uh, some antibiotic or another that would throw off the results. Now, there's something else you need to know about this study. It was, quote, an autopsy-oriented study. It was designed at the end of these men's lives to have them all autopsied. Where? In the hospital on the campus of Tuskegee Institute. The CDC, CDC sent doctors down to come down very hard on Tuskegee and say, look, you are the key to the acceptance of our study in your community here in Macon County, Alabama. And Macon County is a very rural county and a poor farming area, not good land. You know, people could make a crop and could make a little living, but nobody was getting rich there. Uh, at least if they were, I don't know about it. But Tuskegee was something else. Uh, the, the small town with a wonderful uh, institution of higher education, Tuskegee Institute. Which people have heard about because of the Tuskegee Airmen. Not quite. The Tuskegee Airmen are a completely different story. They right. did not have syphilis. They were not studied. They were airmen who were the select people who were pulled out of the draft in World War II. These people scored very high. Some of them had already graduated from universities, Howard or other universities, and uh, they were a pretty select group who flew, and then they had their uh, mechanics and whatever who were trained to repair the airplanes as quickly as possible and get them back up into the air. That's a completely different story. Uh, what happened in Tuskegee uh, was a, a function of the people around in the community, the sharecropper community, in the miles and miles around Tuskegee in Macon County. And the people at the Institute who were highly educated, Booker T. Washington, of course, uh, was the person who built it up. Of course, um, uh, Dr. George Washington Carver, 
uh, was the person who gave us peanut butter. Well, uh, the peanut was not, he didn't discover the peanut. He took scientific methods and figured out what you could do with the peanut and what its nutritional value was. Well, the Confederate Army in the Civil War knew that, and there was a song about it, you know, peas, 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 eating goober peas, which was the southern name for the peanut before it became popularized. And now we, how would we get along without peanut butter and jelly? That was part of Tuskegee Institute. Well, it's the mid-60s. You're a public health worker. You, you, you are one of the few who sort of becomes aware of what's going on down in Alabama. Um, what did you then do as a result of this discovery? Well, I had a brief conversation with the senior health worker, uh, a public health service officer, uh, who told me about this, and I asked him what he thought about it, and he said he didn't really like the idea of the study and didn't think it would come to a good end. I, I don't remember his words exactly, but that was all I needed to hear because I was very familiar from graduate school in German history. I speak German. Uh, I was familiar with the Nuremberg war crimes proceedings, and I could then, and I can now, quote certain pages that uh, interested me when I was in, in university. But um, I realized something was very wrong here. And I said, wait a minute, I'm going out without a badge, without a gun, going to, into really bad parts of town, as well as into very wealthy parts of town, and saying, knock, knock, uh, hello, I want to talk to you because I think you need to come down to our clinic. Uh, you have been exposed to something that you didn't know about, and if you want, I will give you a ride to the clinic. Now, this often would be in the tough tenderloin section of San Francisco, or it would be in Pacific Heights. And it's been a long time ago, so I can tell a few of the stories, not here, not now, some other point of some of the things that happened. And some of them are hilarious, but most of them are tragic. Well, at what point did you try and interest the media in this? Because I know at some point you did. Early on. But first I did something else. As part of my work, I was required every quarter, I think it was, to write a paper of any sort. I could pick a topic, write a paper, research it first, and uh, turn it in. It would be part of our job to do this. And uh, my boss, who was a very fine public health service officer, very fine man, um, he uh, would go through these and give us a grade, and that would be entered into our work record and all of that. And so I wrote a comparison of what the Nazis had done with the, um, the guinea pigs that they used from the concentration camps. Uh, these were people they were going to kill anyway, so they felt that they could do this sort of thing. And they did, and, and it's, it's one of the absolute disgraces of the 20th century, of course, very well known, and people were hanged for doing this. Uh, also in Japan, people do not know much about this, but there is something called Unit 571, or is it 751? I can't remember offhand. Uh, gen uh, he became a general, but he was Major Ishii initially, and his story and what they did 
they, ref they referred to their um, guinea pigs, human guinea pigs, some of which were, many of whom, the bulk of them were Chinese, but many of them were also captured Australians, Americans, even uh, uh, Dutchmen from the Dutch East Indies. And the Japanese, I'm getting off the topic here, the Japanese were trying to find diseases that would affect Chinese but not Japanese, and then later would affect Europeans, uh, like uh, Englishmen, and Americans but not Chinese, uh, not Japanese. And uh, it was, if you will, in some ways, what the Japanese did was worse. I, I won't go into that now because it's pretty disgusting. But uh, let me get back to this. Having had that background of knowledge, I did not take lightly what I found when, as part of my duties, uh, every couple of months I'd have to do some office duty, just sit in the office, answer the phone, and do paperwork, and call up the CDC and say, look, we need some more publications, some more books, uh, we need information on this or that, we have a couple of questions, and I would have to do that. And so one day I was doing it, and I said, give me the publications department, got a nice guy on the phone, I said, hey, I want everything you've got on this Tuskegee study, sure, glad to send it to you. And to my amazement, I got much more uh, material, many more materials than I thought I would. I got a series of reports on what they called roundups. They had a public health nurse, a black nurse from Tuskegee, who had uh, worked her fingers to the bone as a maid to get through nursing school at Tuskegee Institute. Now, of course, it's Tuskegee University. And she was hired and given a little second-hand car, a Ford, and she was to go out on the rough dirt roads around Tuskegee and keep in touch with the people there uh, who had been enlisted into this program. Now again, back to the story of these people were not infected by the doctors uh, they had already plenty of people that uh, were known to be infected, so they just diverted some from the treatment stream, did not give them treatment. When these people said, oh, I've got an ache or a pain in my leg, or you know, I've got a stomach uh, disorder, or something is going wrong with my sight, they would be given a bottle of pink medicine that was essentially liquid aspirin. And they'd take a drink off of that and they would feel better and they'd think, oh, I'm getting free treatment. Well, they were getting free treatment for a headache or some other ache or pain and uh, it wasn't the treatment for what could very well kill them. And of course it means many instances what they were suffering from probably was related to having syphilis. Might have been and might not have been. There were plenty of other diseases and parasites and all kinds of endemic problems with uh, a poor diet. Uh, pellagra, uh, which isn't thought of much anymore, was something that was very common in those days. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.